welcome to episode four of the moon's podcast this episode is going to be all about the ego which i'm sure everyone has at least a partial understanding of what it is but like anything everyone has their own perception of what that three-letter word means and i find that most of the time i hear someone talk about it they're usually referring to arrogance and speak of the ego as solely a negative thing but although arrogance is definitely an egoic manifestation there is actually a lot more that goes into it. And I wanted to use this episode to compile as many views as possible so that we can get a more well-rounded understanding on what the ego really is, so that we can be aware of its negative tendencies and not allow it to act out in ways that are not conducive to our well-being, while also understanding its purpose and its utility, as we all have one. It is an integral part of the human experience, and we will have to dance with it for the rest of our lives no matter how woke we get. But unlike the popular conversation surrounding it, I want to pose a view that it is part of our psyche that we need to form a relationship with so that we can become more aligned and balanced as an individual. So to lay out a foundation, I would define the ego roughly as our idea of self, our sense of separation, the part of us that distinguishes ourselves as a separate entity from the other elements of physical reality. It is a narrative framework that we use to guide our actions and structure our beliefs and perceptions of who we are, where we came from, and where we are going. A story that each of us tells that's titled Me and My Life, built out of the ideas that we have created of ourselves, the opinions of others, and pieces of the memories and information that make up our past, which then acts as one of the initial filters that takes the unpredictable and chaotic elements of our inner and outer worlds and fits them within a narrow context that allows us to be able to act effectively in the social world. So when we were first released from the creation chambers in our mother's uterus, we came into this world with a very thin and foggy sense of self. I mean, nine months prior, we were literally a mixed blob of our parents' DNA, the biological union of two separate entities that over the course of gestation morphed and grew into a third separate entity feasting off the nutrients and energy of our birth giver. So, in my case, that means I was forged from the abnormal amount of double chocolate chip muffins that my mom was eating at the time. So, if any of you girls think I'm sweet, that's probably why. But for the first few months after our red carpet entry onto Earth, we live in this murky state where we begin to move away from a view of the world as deeply unified and connected into a realization of ourselves as being separate from our mother and our external surroundings. And as we continue to evolve, our networks of exploration and curiosity come online, and we begin to investigate the world around us. Through that process, starting to develop a primitive understanding of ourselves as an autonomous individual. Then once we are old enough to start to understand language, we start to label the things around us with words and symbolic mouth noises that help us to distinguish between the objects, environments, and other meat creatures that comprise our external surroundings, which further contributes to our idea of being a separate being. Through this entire process, we are interacting with our parents and our family, who inject into us information about the world we are in, teaching us knowledge that will help us to better understand ourselves and reality that which they had learned through the course of their time here. But as much, if not more so, we are constantly analyzing our parents' actions, good and bad, 
picking up the little things that they act out and integrating them into our little instruction manual for how to be a human. Using our powerful human ability to imitate and mimic each other's behavior, such as our siblings, or especially our parents at that age, who are essentially gods to us due to the extended period of dependency that human beings have. And as well as information and behavior, they are also teaching us values and moral codes from which to live by, which play a role in setting the core foundation of the cultivation of our personality. And the absorption of all of that is usually happening unconsciously, a subtle but potent programming of our subconscious processes that blend into the genetic predispositions that we inherited from our parents at conception. And we will begin to act out all of those things over time, which includes the positive traits as well as the traumas, some not manifesting until years later. And as we continue to move through the stages of childhood, we will enter into the public domain of school, sports, or any other activity that catches our interests, as well as the ones that our parents forced us to go to, which will introduce a whole new dimension of experience to us. The social interaction with other children and adults that have their own unique ways of perceiving the world. And if you grew up with siblings, you would have actually already had a little bit of a taste of this. But through this process, we learn that some people think differently than us, that others live by slightly different rules, and that things that were taught to you are foreign to the other kids. And at this stage, we begin to move away from our parents and connect to the other people around us who we get along with, who we find similarities to, or who maybe we find as admirable or attractive due to their differences from us. And as we move towards adolescence, we separate in our identification with our parents even more, and we shift towards our friend group, who then become our tribe, whether that is a larger group or just a couple of core amigos. Through that tribal connection to each other, we begin to widen our understanding of what it means to be a man or woman, and how we should conduct ourselves in the social world. Of course, this varies from person to person especially if we didn't have a strong connection to one or both of our parents, or any connection at all. What we lacked in a strong parental figure, we look to the outside world to find, which at that stage is usually our friends, or if you're lucky, some other adult figure that understands you and has a genuine interest in you discovering what's best for you in life. And if you were someone who struggled in social environments, maybe it was a connection to movies, books, or video games, or maybe you grew up in a very family-orientated environment where you had extremely strong connections to your parents and or siblings. For me, it was my friends and my older brother in the beginning. But after graduation, I began to search for it in podcasts, books, and lectures from men who spoke in a way that really resonated with me and shared concepts and ideas that were profound and unlike anything that I was used to from the adult figures that I grew up around. And this is all to say that from the moment of our birth, all the way up through our childhood, we are constantly in this ongoing process of experiencing external forces that mold and shape our sense of self. From the overarching beliefs, values, and myths that hold up the foundations of our culture, to the different values and opinions of the people in our lives, as well as the lessons that come from the mistakes, traumas, and successes that we experience on our journey through life. And those are all integrated into the different elements that make up our psyche, the totality of our being. For simplicity's sake, I usually think of the psyche being split into five core pieces. The ego, the personality, the soul, consciousness, 
and our biological and animal drives. Which you can replace soul with conscience, higher self, true self, intuition, etc. Whichever word you use to describe that higher internal wisdom that resides within you. That deeper sense of knowing. There are also a lot of different ways that you can cut up and organize those pieces even further. Using philosophical concepts such as internal family systems, archetypes, mythological gods, or the persona in the shadow. But those are really deep topics that I will leave for another podcast to not take us into too deep of a rabbit hole. But of those five elements, I feel like there is the ego on one end and the soul on the other, almost two distinct entities that operate within us at all times. And the personality blends between them, having elements that are integrated into both of them while also having its own unique characteristics. While consciousness sits behind it all, silently observing, but also it is that which makes decisions, with influences from the ego, the personality, the soul, and our biological drives, each one a separate voice in our heads creating thoughts and emotions to attempt to sway our decisions. So in that sense, it has a connection to each of the other four psychic elements, having the choice over them, while also being subject to being controlled by them. So a core distinguishing component of the ego is that it can only know itself comparatively. Almost as if everything outside of us is holding up a mirror that reflects back to us an external perspective of what we are and what we should be. It is locked into the material world, so it can only operate and know itself as separate from the world around us. It is a function of our mind that is required to be able to function as a human entity in the social world. But since it is a product of the mind, it only knows ideas. And because of that, it doesn't really have a concrete understanding of the truth of given situations. Because it is taking in external information, and it processes it through the ideas that we have about ourselves and the world, cutting it up with all of the memories and stories that make up our perception of the past, and then projects that now-filtered perspective back out onto the world and the people around us. So, for example, if we are feeling insecure, depressed, or angry, and we walk past a group of people in conversation with each other, and as we walk by, they start laughing, then based off the internal configuration of our emotional state at that moment, it will trigger the ego to respond in a way that is in resonance with that emotional state. Where if it is insecurity or depression, we may feel like they are laughing at us and cause us to turn on ourselves and reaffirm our feelings of sadness and inner fragility. And if you are angry, then maybe your response would be to lash out at them, or curse at them under your breath and feel hatred towards them or the world. When in reality, one of them just told the group a funny story, or they accidentally ripped a fart when you walked by, and their laughter had absolutely nothing to do with you. But because of your internal state being imbalanced, the mirror that they were holding back up to you was warped. Compared to if you were feeling confident and aligned with yourself that day, you would be less focused on your internal world, which would make you more likely to place your energy and attention outward so that you may have even been able to notice the fart and get a little chuckle yourself. And you would be more likely to shrug off the voice of the ego when it tries to spin stories of insecurity. Carl Jung has a great quote on this. The persona acts as though it is individual, yet at a core level it is collective. Since the ego is constructed as a social reflection of external forces, it is created thus by those same forces. By believing we are the mask, we are possessed by a mental construction of a collective psyche. 
The persona is, as he said, the different masks that we wear when in different social environments that hides all of the traits that we have or culture has determined are less desirable and places them into our shadow, even if they are positive traits that we are ashamed of or insecure about. The persona is connected to the personality, but since it is largely controlled by external forces as to which elements of us are repressed to the shadow, I attribute the persona more to the ego, at least in my conception of it. The differentiation I would make with the personality is that it has a more intrinsic nature, such as the things that just come naturally to us, the parts of us that are patterned into our behavior and are more automatic, and usually have been there for most of, if not our whole life. It is that which makes us unique, our idiosyncrasies and proclivities that connect us to like-minded people, as well as the parts of us that disconnect us from others whose personalities and views are diametrically opposed to ours. They are the things that stay constant over the years, that are what keep us and our closest friends united, where we can spend months or years without seeing them, but as soon as we get together, it feels like we picked up right where we left off and haven't skipped a beat. The felt sense of true connection to those core pieces of our uniqueness is where I would say it connects and blends into the realm of the soul, in the way that it is natural to us, and it is not an idea that is placed into us by external forces. I'm sure that you all know those elements of yourself, good or bad. For me, I've always had a desire to make people laugh and love to be a performer in various ways. I'm also an empathetic and compassionate person. I try to see the best in everyone and accept them for who they are in that moment without any preconceived notions of them, and I try to understand their view of things to the best of my ability. And those are traits I feel as foundational elements of the positive side of my personality, although they have gotten me into trouble at times in the cases of naivety. And they are able to shine through during the moments when I am not caught up in my ego, which breeds feelings of insecurity, judgment, envy, and jealousy. But on the other end, for a lot of my life, I've been a terrified person. As a kid, I would spend the entire first day of swimming lessons just sitting on the edge of the pool, afraid to go in. I mean, I was too scared to go see Finding Nemo when my family went to see it in theaters. And I refused to go on rides and actually had to be carried kicking and screaming by my dad onto the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney World, which is essentially just a calm boat ride like it's a small world. So I guess I became a Pirate of the Caribbean. But although there are those natural traits, on the other hand, our personalities do have elements that are a bit more malleable, that evolve and change throughout our lives. They are the parts of us that evolve as we mature, as well as those that are shifted when we experience a profound moment of clarity or when we are struck by pain and suffering. These meaningful moments in our lives touch us in a way that after them we are not quite the same person anymore, and the newfound knowledge that they bring are integrated into our personality. This can either be in a positive, life-affirming way that influences you to start making beneficial steps for your growth as an individual, or a negative, self-destructive way that causes you to distrust and turn against those that truly care about you. Or in another more subtle way, for example, if you are around lots of people who are really negative, then you are going to start to view things in a much more negative way. Their thoughts will become your thoughts, which will then bleed that perspective into your personality so that it will begin to become a part of you. You will start to act out behaviors that are in alignment with that negativity. And if you continue to do that long enough, it will transfer from an idea, to a mood, to a temperament, to a personality trait, where then it will become automatic. But if you then make the necessary changes in your life and cut those people out, 
and begin to spend time with more positive people, you can see the opposite occur, where the external reflections of positivity will seep into your perspective and will create the construction of a favorable personality trait. Due to the external nature of these events, they can have a connection to the side characterized by the ego, in the sense that they begin as external concepts, ideas of self, that get integrated into our personalities through repetitive acts of implementation, since it isn't shifted into a feeling of knowing until it is repeated and integrated into us deeply enough that it becomes part of our personality. The soul, however, is something that is much deeper than that level of being. It is that part of us that sits behind our identity, the quiet voice that occasionally whispers to us a wisdom that cannot be created or comprehended by the ego, the reflected material self. We feel the connection to it through our intuition, as well as those moments where we are still enough to sense its peaceful presence. It is the source of those gut feelings when we are about to do something that tells us we should stop, or that we should push through a fear of ours and express what we feel is true. It's that pull to dance, sing, and create, or put ourselves out there while our ego withers with the fear of what other people may think of us. Or that interest we feel towards a certain career or activity that is aligned with our passions, yet carries with it a lot of risk and uncertainty. Yet despite the rationality that tries to explain it away, we can't stop thinking about it. It is the revelations that we experience during spiritual breakthroughs of clarity and meaning and that feeling of alignment that we have when we are on the right path, and the notion of purpose that fills our lives when we listen to that voice of intuitive wisdom. And the personality finds a link with it when we deal with matters of morality and values, as there are ways of being that we regard as highly valuable to us, and some of them were passed to us by our culture, our parents, or the core mentors in our lives, that we have integrated into ourselves and use as guiding principles throughout our journey. However, it's an interesting phenomenon that if they came from our culture, parents, friends, or mentors, then they initially began as ideas. So they were initialized at the realm of ego that were then integrated into the deepest parts of our personality. But why? Why did it connect? Why was it something that you felt so deeply as true that it was placed in the highest regard in your psyche? Even if it came from an admiration of the person who taught it to you, why did you find them admirable? Why do you accept it? And what is the force within us that connects to it, that finds resonance with the meaning that it holds? It is in this questioning that I am tempted to point towards that higher self as a potential explanation, that deeper level of our being that knows the proper way to constitute oneself in a way that is most beneficial for ourselves, our family, our tribe, our community, and sew up the dimensions of humanity. The part of us that is connected to the best version of us, that lures us towards becoming it. One could even say that it is that version of us. Subtly guiding us in the life path that leads to us embodying that future version of ourselves. Another theory I've been working on is that within our DNA, we hold all the wisdom of our ancestors. That through the three to four billion years of our ancestors surviving and successfully reproducing, transferring our genes through multiple different species, and surviving through multiple cataclysms and constant threat, that all of that wisdom has been passed down to us, coupled with the hundreds of thousands of years of interhuman relations and the evolution of our species, of learning how to work cooperatively and thrive in a hostile environment. I wonder if those core ways of being, that ancestral wisdom, 
also plays a role in the construction of our intuition, of our soul. And then there is consciousness, the driver and receiver of it all, the awareness that is locked to the present moment of experience, that observes the thoughts as they go by, occasionally being taken over by our other psychological drives. It is the essence of us that has the gift of choice, that takes in all the data, opinions, and perspectives, and uses that information to decide which path we are going to take. It is as though the elements of ego, personality, and soul all have their own weird form of autonomy, as well as all the little subpersonalities and archetypes that can be abstracted from those. We will find ourselves in a situation where there are multiple different voices speaking to us, telling us how to react, each with their own preferences and character, and it is up to the conscious participant to choose between them. From a psychoanalytical viewpoint such as that of Freud, the ego is where consciousness is held. It is the surface layer of our perceptions that connects our internal existence to the outer world through our senses. And it is the organizing force that interacts with reality while dancing with the demands and impulses of our animalistic drives and our value structures. Whereas in the Eastern religions like Buddhism, the view is that the consciousness we have is who we really are, that it is the realist version of ourselves, the part that should be what we refer to when we think of I. Beyond all the things that make up our humanness, our ego, personality, intuition, emotions, thoughts, and memories, and it sits behind all of it, silently observing the games of the psychological forces, and that through the process of meditation, we can catch glimpses of this pure awareness when all of the thoughts and stories we have in our mind fall away. And that's why some people are driven in that belief to do away with all elements of material reality and connect to the realm of consciousness, of spirit, and the God within. But if the body, the mind, and physical reality is just a distraction and illusion from the truth, then what is the point of life if our goal is to spend our entire time trying to leave it? I understand the idea that attachment to things can be a source of suffering, and that idea does have a lot of validity. But I think life in itself is divine, and I've had lots of profound experiences that came from being an active participant in the game of life. But that is not characteristic of all Buddhist thought, it's just the way that some people take it. Then of course there is the scientific, materialist, reductionist view that consciousness is just a byproduct of biological and evolutionary processes. But I think that theory has its limitations, as it just attempts to explain away a phenomenon that it can't yet find an actual answer to. When I was in high school, I was fully on that side though, a complete atheist, and arrogantly called myself a realist. But I went to a Catholic high school and saw all the nonsense that they were pushing on me, the absolute corruption of the church, and all the insane horrors that were be committed in the name of God in the past, and it made me reject all forms of metaphysical belief. But on one hand, I was only actually hating on the institutions of corporate religion, and was throwing the baby out with the bathwater. As most religions in their core teachings have some extremely beautiful wisdom that the world today could really benefit from if the majority of people were willing to actually understand and practice them. And on the other hand, I was absolutely terrified of the unknown elements of reality, the deepest questions of what life is, why we are here, and what happens when we die. So I just ignored them and just lived in the present moment. But the consequences of that viewpoint was that I lived solely for impulsive pleasures. I had no meaning in my life and battled heavily with nihilism, which made me extremely cynical, judgmental, and really just miserable. But that is one of the traits of the ego, 
to assume that it knows all there is to know about a certain topic, or even about life itself, and then reject anything that sits outside of that narrow framework, or that makes us feel discomfort. Because the ego is constantly trying to protect us from the unknown. And that is actually one of its positive utilities, as there is an infinite amount of information around us at all times in the chaotic and ever-changing external world, as well as our internal world. So it limits all of that noise to a refined point of awareness so that we can feel a sense of comfort in this fabricated construction of mental order, which on the positive side then allows us to actually take action in the world. It's just like how when you open up your phone and you see the colorful display, the clock, and all the apps laid out in a way that makes it extremely easy to navigate the menus. But that is not the reality of what's happening inside the phone. To us, what is simplified to a tap on the Messenger app is a whole line of coding that processes the tap of your finger onto a piece of glass to then formulate the pixels to appear in the correct configuration so that the list of your text threads open properly and you can see the new message you got. So the ego simplifies the world for us and allows us to feel a sense of mastery over our surroundings as well as a level of predictability. As it was put in the psychoanalytical model, our ego is kind of like the psychological equivalent of our skin, ears, eyes, taste buds, and nose. It is that initial layer of perception that connects internal reality with external reality. If we were to lose one of our senses, it would leave a hole in our ability to operate effectively and would require compensation from the other senses, and the unknown would seep more into our physical life. So too, if we do not have a cohesive structure built up around our identity, it leaves room for the unknown to enter our psychology and disrupt the beliefs that give us our sense of comfort and self-assurance. Our natural response to the appearance of the unknown is either usually a mix of fear and anxiety, as anxiety is often the conscious or unconscious obsession and preparation of the worst possible perceived outcome, which is a good thing from a survival perspective, as if you enter the realm of the unpredictable and dangerous, by preparing yourself for the worst thing you can imagine, then in theory you will increase the likelihood that you will be able to handle any outcome that is of a lesser danger. But the other way we can respond to the unknown is with a sense of curiosity and exploration, which is more aligned with bravery and courage. This response is what spawns creativity, as we are able to exit outside of our limited understanding, our walls of perception, the world of the known, and through our exploration bring back new revelatory information that was otherwise hidden from us due to the barriers that our ego had constructed. As if we are too caught in our ego, too caught in protecting ourselves from the unknown, we will continue to build up bigger and bigger walls around our little worldview, constantly thinking that those walls will keep us safe. But that is just a sign of a weak ego and personality, and all it does is make us more and more ignorant to the truth of things, and susceptible to mental collapse in the face of change. As Heraclitus said, change is the only constant in life. And if we are resisting the income of new information, then we are locking ourselves into a perspective and identity that will eventually become tyrannical and outdated. If we go back to how the ego begins to form when we were kids, that is when we are most vulnerable, when most of life is unknown to us. So we build these walls to protect us from that which we don't understand. And that is a very positive psychological phenomenon, because we need it at that stage of our development. But what happens is that as we continue to grow, some of those walls don't come down. We hold on to ideas, habits, and forms of identity that no longer serve us. That which once gave us protection, now becomes an anchor that holds us back. And if you think about it, 
how many of those thought forms that we hold on to are actually ours? And how many of them are ideas that aren't true, that were instilled in us from some external force, mixed into the psychology of a child who didn't know any better? And yet here we are holding on to them well into adulthood. I found with myself, I had lots of those walls, lots of those habits, and lots of those identifications. And when I left high school and almost all of my friends moved away, I didn't know what to do. I no longer had all the familiar mirrors around me to reflect back to me the idea of who I thought I was. I went from being a popular kid in high school to entering to the working world where no one gave a single fuck about who I was. And since I had so many walls built up around the deeper questions of life, I had such a weak sense of who I was without people around me to validate me and confirm to me my identity. And that's when I got addicted to video games, porn, and weed, and was smoking pot all day every day, because I needed something to hold on to, something to help me escape from the fact that I had no clue who I actually was when no one was looking. The walls that my ego had spent 18 years building all came crashing down around me. But every time that that happens, our ego immediately begins the process of rebuilding, as it needs to construct a mental framework of order to keep chaos at bay. And at that time, I was hanging out with one of my only friends who was still around, and he and his brother were big into conspiracy theories. And so my ego began constructing a new identity surrounding being a stoner and a revolutionary, an anti-establishment freedom fighter who just sat on his ass baked as fuck all day playing chell and talking shit about Monsanto and the Illuminati. But it wasn't all misguided, and honestly, I learned a lot about corporate America, the financial system, the war on drugs, eating organic foods, and lots of other topics, and I actually completely changed my lifestyle around. I ate really clean, never drank, and did see a lot of positives from it, like learning to think for myself, be open-minded, and question everything, skills that still really benefit me today. But just like I did back in school, my ego started to put up all kinds of walls around this belief that I alone knew what the truth was, and everyone else was a sheep, and that my parents and family didn't know what they were talking about. And I rejected anything that didn't fit within my internal narrative, my story of what was really going on in the world. A story that only I knew. Around October of that year, my friend got access to a bunch of mushrooms. We had done them once back during the summer for my first time, and it was one of the most incredible experiences I had ever had, and we only did about one gram. Which, for those who haven't done them, is not very much, and great for an introductory dose. And that first time, we sat out at the river that was in his backyard and talked for hours, having very subtle visuals where everything looked vibrant and beautiful, but mainly I just felt really peaceful and clear. But this time it was at night, so we spent most of it in his room. And we did it the night before too, so we had to up our dose, starting first with about one gram, then an hour or so later, I ate about four grams more. And then after another 45 minutes to an hour, we still didn't feel much, so I pulled out four stems from the bag that were about five inches long and about an inch to an inch and a half thick. We didn't have a scale, but they were probably two to three grams each. And I sat there watching Adventure Time, debating if I should take them, and started to eat one of them. But just like mindlessly crushing snacks at the theater, I looked down after a few minutes and saw that I downed all four of them. And after that, I have no real concept of time. I had that moment of transition into a new state that absolutely floored me. I looked at my phone and the Shazam app started to spin. 
and another app that I had had a zombie face on it, and it started to come alive and move its head and open its jaws and its eyes started to glow and spin. I turned and looked back at my buddy who was behind me, and the walls were flashing strobe lights of color and his face was all contorted. My mind was pumping out thoughts so fast that I couldn't grasp onto them, and each of them was projecting images across my visible field of reality, kind of like fast-forwarding through the commercials on your TV. And due to the fact that I had constructed so many walls around my perceptions of myself and life, as soon as it started to intensify and I couldn't control it, I completely broke. And as the night went on for, I mean, what had to have been like nine hours, I watched as every single memory I had, every story I've ever been told, slowly faded away. Till I got to the point at the end of the night where I was just laying on the floor making noises because I didn't even know what language was. It was, it was the most terrifying experience I've ever had. But what was incredible was that although all that was Wyatt was melting away, I was still there watching it all happen. But not me in the classical sense, in the way that my friends and family knew me, or that I knew me. Because that, like, that me was long gone. But a quiet observer sitting behind it all, watching it all fall apart. And although it was fucking crazy, and I would get swept away into constant spirals of absolute terror and complete psychosis, there was this subtle sense of peace, this, this feeling of love and awe that laid behind the curtain, witnessing it all happen. And whenever I had gaps in my experience, in the flow of thoughts and desperate desire to control the situation, whenever I let go, I could feel that sense of peace and warmth. Although, since I had no guidance, no understanding of what was happening, those moments were brief and rare, awash within a sea of complete madness and, like, literal insanity. But what was really incredible, though, was that upon waking up in the morning, I was back. I was me again, or at least I was back in the former identity that I knew as me. And the only thought I had was, well, I guess I shouldn't do that much next time, eh? Which honestly still blows my mind. As I remember a moment of sitting there crying because I had to accept that I would never be able to go back. That I was so completely and utterly gone that I knew it was physically impossible that my mind would ever be able to reconstruct itself, that my parents would never be able to see their son again, and I'd likely get put into a mental hospital. But yet I woke up the next day and just slid right back into my old perception of self, which I, I don't get how that happens, honestly. <laughs> And I mean, I, I would love to tell you that after that day, I was a new man, that it completely changed my life and I went on to be a spiritual badass, but that is not at all what happened. In fact, I actually spiraled into the worst depression and fight with addiction I've ever experienced because I had no way of integrating that experience and no shaman or elder to be able to help me through it and understand it. So as soon as I woke up, I... Got in my truck, got stoned on the drive, went home and had brunch with my grandparents and family. And slid right back into the identity that my ego had been constructing around being kind of a burnout. But it left an imprint. A memory. And a curiosity that never left. A map that was buried into the depths of my subconscious that I didn't find again until years later, when I was able to actually decipher the message and understand its significance.
Luckily, though, as I mentioned in episode three, I moved to Vancouver the next year and it pulled me out of that situation. And I was thrown into a new environment and a new life. I was living alone in my cousin's apartment while he was away before I found my own place and immediately entered into school to learn how to model characters and environments for video games. And what I found, though, was that it was a lot. I did enjoy parts of it for sure, but looking back, I had absolutely no work ethic. I had not prepared for it at all, and with it being a 12-month intensive program, the pace was fast and it required intense commitment. And again, the walls of my ego came crashing down. I was a 19-year-old child who could not handle the real world, and fuck, I needed my mommy. So I actually got her to fly out and stay with me for a week so I could settle in. Even though I acclimated to this new environment, I still didn't have a clue who I was, and again used the mirrors of my classmates to validate me and allow me to construct a new persona, a new mask to wear that I would identify as myself. And if I played the part well enough, and I used a lot of the old tricks that the previous masks used, then maybe I would be able to fool them into thinking that I was the projection that I wanted them to view me as. But... The understanding of this is only coming from looking back. At the time, I had no clue that I was doing this. I only knew masks. So I believed that I was really the mask. My friends, though, did get to see my personality and the people I went to school with, and occasionally my soul did come through and I'd listen to it, even though I had no concepts for this stuff back then. But my ego had its hands firmly on the wheel, with the music cranked, playing excision, and my soul was sitting in the back seat. A quote that I love by Charles Cooley is, I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Which shows that the ego only knows itself from the reflections of others. But the reflections we perceive are not even the real thing. Because they are our interpretations of what we think people think of us. So if we are identified with our ego, when we approach someone, we are wearing our mask, and they have theirs on too. And we each go through this process of looking into each other's mirror to see if our masks are on straight. And so begins this dance of confirming to each other that the mask looks good, unconsciously trying to fool them into thinking that we are the mask, the persona that we portray to them. And the thing with culture today is that we all do this to varying degrees. Rare is the person who actually knows who he or she is, and who actively searches into the depths of their own psychology to understand themselves, especially the dark parts. Although this information is getting out there, and there are lots of people who are being pulled towards a desire for something more in life, even if they don't know what it is. I mean, you're one of those people. You're listening to this podcast, which means that there is something in you that connects to it, that wants to understand more about yourself and this crazy world that you and I are living in. That's why I want to share this information and these stories with you, so that we can learn from my mistakes and the things that I've been able to accumulate from reading into people way smarter than me, so that we can both grow into the best versions of ourselves and do what we can to leave the world at the end of this life knowing that we made the conscious effort to make it a better place in whatever way or degree of magnitude that is. Because we can all see the other end of what's happening in culture how much people are trapped in their own internal walls, and how what's deemed as valuable by the majority is completely fucked, how divided people are and what they see is right and wrong, and how that divide keeps growing, 
because people have built these strongholds around themselves in the complete act of fear. And all that it does is continue to increase their fear and anxiety, which keeps them in a static, old, and dying state. It is Yang, the white paisley, that which we know, order, security, and structure. But if we do not allow anything new to come into our world, we become a tyrant, ruling viciously over our little mental kingdom and projecting that out onto everyone else around us. And if you're a half-respectable person, all it takes is for a pandemic to cause a lockdown and the next thing you know you're bitch-slapping an old lady because she grabbed the last package of fucking toilet paper. As if we refuse to leave our mental castles, we are cut off from and at odds with that which we do not understand. And yeah, the unknown is terrifying. It is yin, the black paisley, that from which all horrible things emerge. But it is also the space of renewal, creativity, and evolution. And if you refuse to look at that and accept it as the other half of the literal structure of reality, then you refuse to accept evolution and growth as a human being. And what is the thing that life has been doing for its entire known existence? Growing and evolving. Which is why I think we largely live in a world of olders, not elders, where technology has made things so easy for us that we can reach a level of development that we are content with and just start building our walls at the cost of genuine wisdom and maturity, which locks us largely to the psychological development that we were in when we first started the construction of that identity, which for a lot of people was when they were a kid. And I'm not excluded from this at all. I am still struggling with some of the habits and ideas that I had developed as a kid that have been rotting away inside of me for years, but I'm terrified to completely tear down the walls I've built. I've been fortunate to get past a few of them, but I'm still scared to commit fully to my dream, my dharma, and let go of the last comforts that are predictable to me, even if they are now anchors. Anchors that are keeping me caught in repetitive cycles of shame and regret, Scared to take full responsibility for my life and give up the comforts of childhood to become a man and the hero of my own story. But the problem is that we have given over a lot of the responsibility in our lives to other people, largely in the forms of government in exchange for security and technology companies in exchange for ease of life, or religion to just tell us the answers to the biggest questions of reality so that we don't have to do the research and think for ourselves. And that allows us to stay a child and refuse the call to genuine manhood or womanhood. Because for the small price of freedom, those powers will take care of it and make our decisions for us, which leaves us vulnerable to their moral compasses. And if you look at the state of Mother Earth right now, it's pretty clear that they don't have humanity and nature's best interest in mind. But what we had in the tribal cultures of the past that we are desperately in need of now are rites of passage or at least the wisdom and the transformation that they represent. In the ancestral cultures all around the world, to help us to make that transition of maturation and find our place in the world, boys were put through their tribe's rite of passage, where the male elders would often take the boy away from their mother in the middle of the night to put them through a trial, which could be anything from a psychedelic trip using something like peyote, to sweat lodges or fire dances, or to a vision quest they, where they would be sent into the forest for multiple days to survive on their own, or even to straight-up forms of torture, each of them carrying with it the potential to kill or harm the child. Usually the passage included some form of heightened or altered state of consciousness, which held the purpose of forcing the boy to go into the depths of his own being and come out of the trial a man. And the men would guide him through this process with the idea that the boy was being inducted into a group of men, 
and to be able to join them, he himself had to become a man. And if they survived, they had to come back to the tribe with a deep knowing of what their role would be within the group. As in most tribes, if you did not have a role upon returning from your trial, you were cast out or even killed. As in the dynamic of the clan, dealing constantly with matters of survival, they could not afford to feed mouths that couldn't contribute. So even while we were still a child by today's standards, we were forced to undergo a serious test of maturation, designed to be a difficult and terrifying experience that pushes us to our absolute limit, something that simulated death. An experience that destroys the egoic walls of the child's identity, that kills it, so that something new can take its place. And upon emerging from the other side, we know that we can take it, which gives us a strong sense of self. Then with the help of the tribal elders and other men, they can help to guide the ego towards a positive construction of a new framework, one that promotes individuality, yet cohesion with the group dynamic. And for young girls, the birthing and care of children was their rite of passage, the birthing being something that could easily have killed you back then. But even then, just because you had a kid doesn't mean you are a woman, or that the father is suddenly a man. It just means that you have a kid. And that actually adds more responsibility onto you, and gives you a more urgent reason to step up to the plate and start to mature, which is a continuation of that trial. But also now our society has evolved to bring women into that previously masculine world. So when I speak of the need for maturation and the understanding of ourselves, or of a rite of passage, I'm speaking to everyone. I feel like that experience I had on those 10 to 15 grams of mushrooms was exactly that phenomenon. A rite of passage. A complete dissolving of my childhood ego. However, I did not go in with the intention of a trial. Of the knowledge of what lied ahead of me, nor a shaman to guide me through the experience or to help with the construction of a new sense of self on the other side. Instead, I went in the idea with tripping balls, crushing beers, and watching Adventure Time. So when the chaos began, I was completely overwhelmed and literally lost my mind. But within our culture today, what sort of maturation trials do we have? I think for most people, it's just going out with their friends and getting blackout drunk on their 18th or 21st birthday. And all that really comes from it is a hangover. And I'm not saying that we all need to do psychedelics or that we all need to undergo some extreme trial. But what I am saying is that we need to look at ourselves honestly and start to pay closer attention to our behavior so that we can begin to understand these patterns of the ego. To observe what kind of stories we are telling ourselves and where the origin of those stories may be. And ask where we are too rigid in our beliefs. Or maybe even acknowledge that we have been carrying around the same old habits for years and make a decision whether or not the comforts of our past are worth keeping us from really moving forward in life. And once we begin to track those patterns when they emerge, we can make the conscious choice not to respond to their pull and to act a different way and willingly step into the unknown, which will allow us to understand and overcome our fears and gain new perspectives on ourselves, the people around us, and the world as a whole. Maybe you've had a similar experience of space from yourself, either in a psychedelic trip as I have, or in another way. Or maybe you haven't. But that doesn't mean you can't begin to start integrating daily practices to begin to cultivate separation and make observing your ego and thoughts much easier. Meditation is probably a really good technique for growing in self-awareness, but I'm not qualified to talk about it because it's a habit I really struggle with keeping up with. 
if it, I mean, if anything, I'll do like 15 minutes once every few days, forgetting about it the days that I don't. So since it's not a part of my life, I don't feel like I'm capable of authentically speaking towards its benefit. However, there are lots of people out there who can provide that information for you. But I've talked a fair amount about journaling in previous podcasts because it is my go-to habit for understanding myself, and it's a practice that I completely integrated into my life, where as soon as I write out a thought on paper, I create separation from it. I can see it visually, instead of it just floating around my head triggering emotions. And that can be any form of thought. I've had times where I was pissed off and bitched for pages into my journal. And then when I came back the next day or even just an hour later, I could look at it and see the exact trigger that started it and analyze all the opinions that I had from a detached objective state, where when I wrote it, I was completely charged with emotion. And then upon seeing it in that light, I could follow that trigger back and understand where it came from and see if I was justified in my anger or see where maybe my ego was the driver and I was blaming someone else or judging them unjustly. And the thing with doing this is that each time you catch yourself, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to say like, oh, wow, I was really judgmental there. It's a good thing that you caught it. Yes, you, maybe it's too late or you spoke up and said something that was kind of hurtful to someone, or maybe it was just a thought you had. But the fact that you're catching it is a good thing, because then the more that you do that, the more that you're going to bring awareness to the other times that you do. And the triggers that are the egoic actions or the egoic reactions are going to become an opening for then you to bring more conscious awareness to those tendencies. So what could be perceived as a bad thing is actually an opportunity for you to grow more in your self-awareness. One of the main tendencies of the ego that I imagine every one of us shares from time to time is to identify as a victim. This one is a favorite of the ego because then it can feel special and whine about how difficult I have it compared to others or how no one understands what I'm going through, nor do they even care. By adopting an identification with a victim, we immediately relinquish all the responsibility we have for fixing our own issues, for willingly standing up and dealing with the shit that's in front of us, and instead we just complain. We just talk about how wronged we were and how shitty it is that we were put into this situation that we find ourselves in. Or if we do deal with those issues, we just do it begrudgingly and hate the world for it. See, from the perspective of the ego, being the victim is the shit. Because by being the victim, we somehow become self-righteous and our issues become all important. Even though being a victim doesn't move you up a classic social dominance hierarchy, it creates its own where we sit up at the top as he who is most wronged by life and thus most deserving of getting attention and empathy from people. From that perspective though, all it does is separate us from everybody else so that we can feel special, which is textbook ego. While it also creates an opposition that is wrong, that is evil, and thus lesser than we are. In that state, you can't even fathom to do things for others, let alone even be able to consider the lives and needs of anyone other than yourself, because that identification with the victim has placed you into a survival mode. You see, as an isolated ego, especially in that form of victimhood, you only desire energy to flow towards you, to draw in everything from those around you. Even if you do something for another, it is so that you can get something in return. But it's never enough, because the unchecked ego can never be satisfied. I had someone very close to me get trapped in that archetype, and it caused her to villainize me and spin all of these stories about how I was ruining her life, and how, as a result, she needed to do everything she could to try and hurt me as much as possible. 
but none of what she thought about me actually existed. In reality, all I wanted was to be there for her and support her. And she had just repressed so much and had so much negativity inside her that instead of dealing with her own issues, she just projected them onto me. As it's much easier to blame another than to deal with your own shit. And since when identified with a victim, you get to feel like you are right no matter what. And it makes it extremely easy to block out your conscience and continue to feed into all the lies that you are telling yourself about what is true. Another core element of the ego that all of us have is insecurity which can be framed as a weakened ego or personality that has become dependent on the validation of others. And almost all of the negative manifestations of ego are attempts to cover up those insecurities. There are things about our bodies, our personalities, or our habits and lifestyles that we wish we could change. Things that we think about often, hide from others, or obsess about. Sometimes working so hard to try and fix it that we take it too far. They are manifestations of a fear of judgment from others, a design to be viewed in the eyes of others as attractive, responsible, disciplined, smart, or essentially just perfect. Or maybe they are a scar from a time in our lives where we were ridiculed for some part of our body or the way we laughed or danced that caused us to bury that part of ourselves into our shadow. For me, most of my insecurity manifests around attractive women, as I'm sure is the same for a lot of guys, and an issue that I've dealt with a lot is that I metaphorically turn them into unicorns. I project onto them this weird-ass level of divinity, where they become these rare mythical beings that are way more evolved than I am, and I'm just this like weird little meat creature in the presence of an angel. And it's definitely an objectification. I think in the sense that they are no longer human beings at that moment, which I mean probably has been amplified by things like porn and movies, while also is in part a philosophical idea that when a man meets an attractive woman, he immediately projects onto her all the traits of the divine feminine archetype. But all that I'm doing is putting others up on a pedestal that is impossibly out of reach. And with that comes the desire to acquire traits that I currently lack, and that I think I need to be able to get that confidence and increase my attractiveness. Which puts me at odds with myself, unable to accept myself as I am, because I always think that I have to be what they want me to be, which is a pointless and impossible task to undertake. Back when I was 19, living in Vancouver, that was probably one of the lowest points in my life in terms of self-esteem and self-love, and I projected all of that insecurity outwards onto every girl I saw or met. I still remember this thought that came to me when I was alone in my kitchen one night, where I just picked up some weed and some junk food, and I said to myself, no girl would ever love me, so what's the point of even taking care of myself anymore? And it's been seven years since then, and I still remember it, even though it was literally just a thought. But I think it's still here because I really meant it. And over the course of that year, I gained a bunch of weight and got up to like 210 pounds at one point. And I saw a similar pattern emerge back when I was with my ex, where the lack of external connection caused me to attempt to supplement it with junk food and alcohol. And the same sort of self-hatred started to become my new normal. Even though I'm extremely insecure about my body, and would obsess about it the entire time as I watched myself blow up externally while I fell apart internally. It's this weird fucking dynamic where I would obsess about it, but then didn't do anything to fix it. It's laziness and habitual cycles for sure, but also the fear of change, of making the desired shifts in personality and lifestyles that are required to not just get in shape, but maintain it long term. Which would break down the walls of my identity, an identity that although was no longer productive, it still gave me a feeling of safety and comfort, 
something that I could run back to every time I felt stressed or upset. And the ego, the small self, the human animal, heavily resists change, as it has constructed an outer reality of predictability that gives it a sense of comfort and peace. And internally, it has created a sense of self and perspective on the world that would be destroyed if we were to make the necessary changes to enact that evolution in our reality. Which, from a biological and survival perspective, makes complete sense. If you're in a position where you're content, why would you change it? Why would you risk losing this and put yourself in the realm of the unknown and unpredictable where you could get hurt? Why expend unneeded energy when you have all the things that sustain you and bring you joy, even if those things are slowly killing you and doing more harm than good to your mental health? This is why I always feel the pull to go back to crutches like booze, weed, and junk food when I'm feeling discomfort, either from a loss of connection to a lover or any other external force that threatens my sense of self. I know that this will bring me more pain in the future, but right now, I know that at least I will get a predictable level of comfort that will put the discomfort to rest, even if just for a few moments. But a real solution to that is the cultivation of a strong ego, of self-love, of not letting external forces and other people control how I feel on the inside, not letting my value be determined on whether people like me or not, but deciding for myself to stop wasting my life and committing a slow suicide through ignorance and escapism. So back in April of this year, when I moved home again after the breakup, I started to do things for myself, holding myself to my own values and putting my health first. And if you've heard my previous podcasts, I went into all the positive things that were happening to me, the massive boosts in self-love and confidence and the overcoming of obstacles in my way. But the crazy thing about this game that we're in is that it never ends. There's always some new obstacle that we didn't expect that occurs in our path where the ego always rebuilds itself and tries to control our choices and thoughts a lot of the times through our subconscious. For me, it was that I started to get obsessed with seeing the numbers go down on the scale and constantly checking out my stomach in the mirror and measuring it, where I got so caught up in seeing my weight drop and the fasting I was doing was really making my gut look smaller, so I started starving myself more and more. Most days eating one small meal a day and others nothing at all. Then I worked and partied at Stampede every day this past July while working my other full-time job and hardly eating. So I was draining myself the whole time and naturally on the second last night due to my weakened immune system, I ended up getting COVID, which put me bedridden for 10 days and caused me to have even less of an appetite and lose even more weight and muscle. And before I knew it, I weighed 160 pounds. And for someone who's 6'3 with my body type, I should be nowhere near that low. But I had no intentions of stopping because I still viewed myself as almost there. That I needed to just lose a little more and then I would be attractive. Then I would be worthy of love from a woman and from myself. But back in August, I went out to Vancouver Island with some friends to do some camping. And we did some acid together out on the lake. And during the trip, one of them made a brief and like easy to miss comment about it. And it completely rocked me. I'd never really been one to work out or diet, but had always been insecure about my body, so I think the body dysmorphia had always been there, but it wasn't until I started to see my body changing and the numbers on the scale dropping that I developed kind of a form of anorexia, which I feel a lot of resistance to even claiming that, because again, my ego wants to be viewed as a mentally strong and self-aware person, but also because I know people go way deeper than I did into it. But just because people have issues worse than yours, it doesn't discredit your issues. It doesn't make them not issues anymore. 
And honestly, I don't know if I would have stopped if they had not said anything. And if I had not been given the gift of analyzing myself from a different perspective that LSD provided me. As well as if I hadn't had two extremely beautiful people with me who genuinely inquired about my well-being. Something that I had not really had around me for a long time. So thank you, Connor and Kayla. I love you guys so much with all my heart. But that's what's crazy about the ego, about the mental prison that is the fear of what other people think. That even when things are going well and you're doing something for the right reasons, there's always that underlying egoic desire that hides waiting and potential. That desire for positive attention, for praise, for acceptance, for external validation that can take even an altruistic or meaningful intention and turn it into something destructive if you're not fully aware or if you don't have a solid support system around you of people who genuinely care. That idea of having a support system is another area where the ego finds its home in the formation of a group identity. This can be seen most evidently in the fans of sports teams, in the mutual love of a specific band or artist, or in an admiration for comic book heroes, movies, or any kind of pop culture figure, as well as, and perhaps more so, in movements of belief such as religion, politics, diet, social justice, lifestyle, or any forms of ism. And a lot of what brings people together in these isms and movements initially is shared values and morality. And for those groups that are successful and strong, that collective morality is what keeps the dynamic healthy and constantly growing. That alignment of value and mutual interest is a foundational piece of the formation of tribes that bonds people together through the pursuit of a mutual goal or the sharing of ideas to help strengthen the group, as well as the individuals that comprise the group. It's where we become a part of something bigger than us, and we can feel a sense of belonging around like-minded individuals, which is a big part of human life. It's where you can be at a sports game and feel the energy of the crowd as you cheer on the hometown team, or where you can form a movement that causes a major positive change for the community or the culture as a whole. However, although it is a beautiful thing, there is a huge potential for this to become dangerous, both to the individuals as well as the world at large. And human history is absolutely filled with horrors that have been a negative consequence of this egoic adaptation where through the ideaplex, our identifications, the thought forms that create the walls of our ego's constructions, through them we connect to other people and the groups that share the same narrative framework on reality. But when you do not have a strong sense of self and a healthy personality and ego, when you have constructed too strong of walls surrounding your identity and your view of the world, by seeking out and joining a group of other people who are in the same position, it often causes those walls to join together and evolve to an even more rigid identity of the group that we are a part of. We get caught in this place where we are only around people who agree with us, whose reflections reflect back to us a confirmation of our limited image of ourselves and the world around us. And that will dramatically amplify the identification that we have with those beliefs. And we slowly begin to lose ourselves in the ideas of the collective ego. We sacrifice pieces of our individuality to the group in exchange for the security that the group provides. And we reject anything that sits outside of the ideology of the tribe. And since that identification and those beliefs are mostly within the realm of ideas, within the mind, then the more that we double down on that identification, the more we lose touch with our soul and pieces of our personality.
And the more we become identified with the idea of who we are within the group, more identified with our ego. But where it is tricky is when it comes to the big matters of human life, such as politics, religion, and lifestyle, those are the fields usually fueled by our values and our moral code of what we believe is right and wrong, which is usually integrated into the realm of personality and conscience. But since the ego only knows itself subjectively as a separate entity, we begin to project that what is right for us is right for everyone. We lose touch with the reality that what works for you may not work for someone else. And even that which works for you at one point in time may not work for you in the future. So the morality that bonded you together that's founded on a we-centric perception then becomes warped into an I-centric perception. One that ignores the right that everyone else has to their own perspectives and way of life. Although I would add a caveat that as long as their way of life does not infringe on someone else's way of life. And we fall into the trap that everyone else has to share the same beliefs as us. Because any other perspectives that sit outside of the walls of our perception, we then perceive as a threat to our walls, to our view. And since we have accepted the ego as I, and the ego has connected our sense of self, our identity, to those ideas, then those ideas become us. And a threat to our ideas is transmuted into a perceived threat on our life. So then, for example, if someone else comes along who believes in a different version of God or a different way that the country should be run, then it turns from just another perspective into the perspective of the enemy. All it takes is a brief view of history to see the absolute massacre that has been done in the name of religion to others of a different race or to cultures with different political views. And it's crazy how we get so lost in the story that we have in our heads that we become blind to the fact that in the case of religion, for example, most religions share a lot of the exact same concepts, but are just ran through different narratives, a different story. And we get so obsessed with defending our story that we lose sight of the actual moral codes that those beliefs were founded on, which for the most part are based in love. And we shift our focus more towards defending our ideas and ensuring that our side is victorious. And that competitive mindset takes us away from growing and expanding our perspective because that would require you to be in a state of lowered wall introspection and evaluation. And that state cannot exist in the same space of forced action and the dismemberment of your enemy's viewpoint. On the other side of group identity though, we can experience the ego manifest as a desire towards nonconformity, where we do all that we can to go against what is popular, to separate us from the cultural norm. And this is something I did a lot when I was a kid. I would purposely do the opposite of what the rest of the people were doing, just so that I could feel like I was special, like I was an outlier. When I was in grade 10, we would have a school mass every couple months, and they asked us to dress up in nice clothes. So naturally, I wore the baggiest pants I had, low riding, with a long-ass basketball jersey, and threw on my bright red high tops and went to the mass dressed like a wannabe gangster. Or on normal days, I would wear all dress clothes with a vest and tie just for fun, as well as bright colored pants and clothing and eventually ended up getting bright red glasses. And even on two occasions, me and a buddy dressed up randomly as Mario and Luigi and went to school, then went off to McDonald's at lunch and blasted the Mario theme song while throwing banana peels out the sunroof, which is absolutely brilliant and still cracks me up to this day. And on one hand, I admire that younger me to go against the grain and do funny shit like that. But the thing with acting against culture like that is that if it is not a genuine following of your own individuality, then you are still as much of a slave to culture as those who follow the status quo. 
So for me wearing the basketball jersey and low riding pants, it wasn't that I was different. It was that I wanted to be different. And I wanted to be viewed by others as the guy who did his own thing and didn't care what people thought. When in reality, I cared a lot about what others thought about me. But then with things like the Mario and Luigi outfits, there was definitely a bit of that. But also, it's just hilarious. And I knew that it would make other people laugh and brighten their day. And with the dress clothes and bright pants, for sure my ego liked sticking out. But I also just love wearing that kind of stuff and still do to this day. But since the ego is locked into the world of matter, it is concerned largely with affairs of survival, of making sure that we are protected from the dangers of the unpredictable outside world, which is how it connects to our animal drive of self-preservation, where if you look at most animal species as well as within humanity means being high up in the dominance hierarchy, where if you are the top dog, you get more access to mates, to food, resources, safety, and security. And our ego is constantly analyzing those around us to see where we sit within that hierarchy in whatever social environment we are in. So in the realm of group identification, the ego attaches to groups or pop culture phenomenon that we view as valuable. And through our identification with it, we feel as though we have raised our value as an individual. I did this when I was younger in a lot of different ways, but when I was in junior high and high school, the Dark Knight movies came out. And after I saw it, I became obsessed, partly due to a genuine love for it that I had at the time, but also because if I attach myself to those movies or Batman as a figure, then anyone who liked those movies or was a fan of Batman, then they would probably like me. So I took what I viewed as a cool external entity, and I merged my identity with it, to then in theory raise my coolness and increase my chances to make out with smoking hot bitches. And I did the same thing with sports teams. I collected jerseys at the time, and whenever a team was winning in the playoffs, I would wear their jersey at the time so that then my ego could feel like it was a winner. And if they lost, then I would just tuck that thing back in the closet and out would come another team's jersey that was on a roll. Which is hilarious to me looking back, since at the time I had no self-awareness and was fully caught in my ego and sought to attach myself to anything that would inflate my idea of self and move me up my perceived hierarchy. On an individual level though, instead of attaching to something of perceived value, the same practice can be seen in overinflation. And it's probably most apparent when I go to the gym, where there is so much testosterone in the air that you can fucking smell it. And I'm, I'm by no means jacked, and I'm even skinnier nowadays, but when I go to a place like that, I see these absolute gorillas there, and immediately my ego senses that in this hierarchy, daddy is nowhere near the top. So I'll see a guy there who's a little older or overweight, and I will feel my ego start to puff itself up in their presence, usually accompanied by a quick thought like, look at this fat guy, or oh yeah, I could definitely beat the wheels off that fossil. And then if a hot chick comes into that area, all of the egos and every guy in there kick it up another notch and the heavier dumbbells start calling out to me. And it's so funny to me to just observe my ego go off, throwing judgments at everyone in there, eventually even to the super fit guys. Like, I bet he's got rocks for brains or that guy's probably a dick. Like, I'm way nicer than he is. Because in that place where I'm at best near the middle of the pack and sometimes I'm even the bottom feeder, my ego has to spin all of these stories to try and construct its own dominance hierarchy where I find my way to the top. 
And it does that largely by judgment of putting other people down so that I can feel better about myself, all in the attempt to cover up the gaping insecurities that I feel about not being that strong or having a layer of fat covering up my rippling six pack. And this is the process of overinflation, where if I do not have the humility to accept myself as a novice, which is a laying down of those walls and allowing new information to enter, then my ego will begin to defend those walls in whatever way it can, and it becomes like a chihuahua in the presence of a great Dane. So how do we get past these impulses of the ego? And how do we find that sense of inner alignment? How do we find a feeling of true confidence in ourselves that protects us from being overtaken by the ego? Now that we have a decent understanding of the different ways that the ego operates in us, we can begin to look at the balance of the two opposing perspectives that it operates within, which are humility and arrogance. There's a great image that I got from a YouTube video done by After School on Abraham Maslow that lays this out perfectly, which had humility on one end, arrogance on the other, and confidence in the middle, with positive and negative manifestations between them. For me, I have usually stayed on the side of humility, which is the downplaying of one's importance, deflecting the praise of others and attributing it more to luck, the work of teammates, and acknowledging that I still have so much more to learn. Which is a positive thing, as there are so many different factors that go into any form of success outside of your individual effort, and the adoption of a student mindset allows for you to always be open to learn new things and grow your perspective. But the issues that I saw from that was that I would never acknowledge my talents, never give myself the credit when I actually was good at something, which in a way made me turn against myself, and the humility that was a positive trait turned into a form of self-loathing, where in social circumstances I would never feel like I had anything intelligent to add to the conversation, or around girls I never viewed myself as attractive so I always felt like they were out of my league. It set this narrative in my mind that because I still had so much left to learn that I didn't know anything. And all it took was for someone to come along who spoke confidently for me to immediately assume the position that they were probably right and I was wrong. And it created this feeling in me that I was almost there, like almost good enough, almost smart enough. If I just did a little more research, then I would understand it enough to be able to talk about it. Or if I was only a little more fit or had nicer clothes or material things, that then I would feel confident enough to talk to that girl. But a lot of it was fueled by fear. A fear of being wrong and the fear that if I proclaimed this thing or thought that I was right, that someone may view me as arrogant. And again, I needed the mirrors of others to hold up a perfect reflection for me to be able to feel worthy of love from them, but mostly from myself. Whereas on the other side, we have arrogance, the inflated sense of one's importance, where we attribute all of the success we have to our own greatness, and if anything goes wrong, then it had to either be someone else's fault or some conspiracy against us. But the positive aspects of existing on that side are a belief in ourselves and having a sense of pride in what we do, believing in what we are doing and not being afraid to stand up for what we feel is right. However, more often than not, when we have a fragile ego full of insecurities, then we will overinflate those traits as an attempt to hide our own insufficiencies. This is a form of arrogance that is pretty obvious to see in people. Unless you are really insecure, then you often are attracted to them like flies to a light. 
But people like this always need to convince you of how cool, smart, strong, or perfect they are, and often attack anyone who brings attention to their grandiose bravado. And they keep around those who feed into their feelings of increased importance, which only amplifies it. This is the realm of building up too many walls around us, where the ego begins to feel like it knows everything there is to know about a certain topic or about the world at large, that we are right and that everyone else is beneath us. Compared to the other side, where we do not build up enough walls, and for me personally, I refuse to build up any new identity constructed on my values and moral compass out of a fear of confrontation and failure feeling that I would likely lose in any argument or dispute, which then led me to letting people walk all over me. Or they would say and act in ways that went against my beliefs, but I would just choose to not say anything. And I'd often cover up that by thinking, it doesn't matter anyways, like, I don't really care that much. Even though each time I did it, it would cause me to turn even more against myself. And I viewed myself as weak, because I was. And the more often I did that, say in a relationship, the more I would begin to resent that person. Or, more accurately, I would begin to resent the delusional perspective of who I thought that person was based off my projections. And also, by not building up any walls, any framework, then I remained in the previous identity that I had built when I was a child, and fell into the Peter Pan archetype, someone who is full of potential but never becomes anything. But for someone to sit in a place of genuine confidence, say if they are on the side of corrosive humility, then they have to begin to move towards more of a belief in themselves and a strengthening of their pride, a respect for yourself and a feeling that you are worthwhile. Which for me has come from taking action, of accepting that I don't know everything and that's okay. What I know currently is good enough to be able to take action. And if that you find through action that some of your assumptions were wrong, that it doesn't mean that you failed. It just provided you an opportunity for further learning, to be able to readjust your aim and fire again. And if you're not sure where to aim, that's where the soul comes in. It is your guide star, where we must cultivate a relationship with our intuition and allow it to point us in the proper direction. Your intuition does have a higher wisdom maybe from a higher power or from the ancestral wisdom passed down to us, but it is also programmed in part by the knowledge you have gained through your past experiences and the information you have gathered. It grows as you grow. I feel like all the books I've read and the podcasts I've listened to, all of that information has been integrated into my soul, my conscience. And the revelatory experiences that I've had in life or in psychedelic trips, those moments were the felt experiences and the grand unification of all of that information. Like all of the untied connections linked together in a moment of absolute clarity that goes way beyond words. But now when I am faced with a decision, the voice of my conscience is in direct resonance with those experiences and epiphanies, which are aligned to my understanding of what is true for me in the most profound sense. It is the voice of all of those things that you know that you should do, but often don't, and choose instead to listen to the familiar voice of the past and the ego, because often that voice of our intuition leads us in a way that would cause parts of our walls to collapse, so that a new identity and a way of being can be established, which is a massive threat to the ego and will cause it to defend itself by persuading you to go back to those old ways of being and those old identifications with self. And something for those on the side of arrogance is to bring awareness to the multitude of different things that had to go right for you to be successful, no matter how big you get in your respective field, that if you were to enter into a new practice, you would have to start out again as a rookie. So compared to basing your self-worth on your accomplishments, 
Instead, shift that to your ability to problem solve and commit yourself to the process, becoming more work-orientated than goal-orientated. Or if it is more of an inflated form of ego, take an honest look at what your actions are trying to cover up and begin to deal with the insecurities that give rise to the overcompensations. This can be done through honest communication with yourself and your closest friends, or by finding a group or therapist that you can talk to about those issues, as was covered in episode 1. And as you move more towards the center point of confidence, there may be temptations of the ego to sway you to the extreme of the other side. I have found for myself that as I started rolling more and more with my work, I can see that I'm becoming more proud of myself and the changes I've been able to make, and there is a belief in myself that is beginning to mount. And with that comes the temptations to think that I'm special, to view others who are struggling with judgment, which is a projection of the judgment that I have for that part of me that I'm trying to move away from, and the awareness of that has really helped me to keep me centered, as well as the recognition that I still have a long way to go and so much to learn, that even though I may get compliments on my music or the podcast, I still know that there are lots of areas that I can improve, while also genuinely accepting the compliments and making sure that I don't fall back into the side of corrosive humility and unhealthy self-deprecation. But all of this is done through an alignment of yourself, of the elements of ego, personality, soul, animalistic drives, and consciousness, where as you begin to make conscious choices that are directed to you by your higher self, it will then cause your egoic frameworks that go against it to begin to fall. But as we have seen, it will immediately begin to build a new framework to view the world. So if you are pointed in a direction built on your values and intuition, then the ego will form itself around that new identity that you want to create. And the more that you repeat those aligned actions, the more they will begin to get integrated into your personality, into the automatic part of what makes you, you. And through those actions, you will begin to respect yourself more. And then you are no longer a house divided against itself, but a unified and whole being. As we have to earn our own respect, which is done by listening to that part of us that knows. That responds with feelings of internal judgment and guilt when we go against it. As the intuition and the internal judge are two sides of the same coin. But as we shift in our identification more towards that deeper part of ourselves and less to the ego, the more we will be able to see the ego for what it is, and it will begin to be a servant and not our master, where we can then use the ego's competitive nature to our advantage and its desire to be great and to succeed as extra motivation to help us when we are down, while not letting its desires get in the way of the real reason why we are doing it, which comes from a place much deeper, a place of genuine love and passion for what we are doing. And I can tell you from personal experience that even though I get caught up in the games of the ego all the time, I never stop feeling that pull. And the feeling of finding that alignment within yourself and the expression of it into your passions and daily life, that feeling is the single greatest thing I've ever experienced. I'll close with a metaphor that I heard from Eric Godsey that may or may not be his, but to view the ego as a gardener and our soul as a tree. And that the job of the ego is to tend to the tree and help it grow into physical reality. That our ego is here to water the tree and make sure it gets enough sun, to care for it, and to cultivate the optimal fertilized situation for it to flourish, while also clearing away any obstructions that may get into the way of it growing, to metaphorically sweep away any leaves or branches that may fall onto it, and to make sure that no forms of illness corrupt the tree and cause it to fall ill to remove any dead branches on it and allow new ones to grow, 
and to harvest the fruits of the soul and to give them to the people around us, while also keeping in mind that the gardener is the gardener, not the tree. The tree is our future self, the best version of us, as well as the creations we make in this life that are manifested expressions of our love and passion, whether that is in an artistic pursuit, a business we create, the love we feel when we're traveling, or just the daily life we live when we are acting in accordance with the real us, not the version that is created of the expectations of other people, or the stories that tell us of who we are supposed to be. The life that is lived in alignment, filled with growth, purpose, and meaning, in whatever way that calls to you. But that's a wrap on this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun making this one and it really pushed me to better understand the concepts myself and I realized in the process of kind of preparing for it how insanely complicated it is and I hope that I was able to break it down in a way for you that made sense and sorry for the unintended two-month hiatus I lost a lot of momentum after working the stampede and getting COVID and then going to Vancouver and fell into a lot of impulsive partying and drinking over the summer and when it came to getting back into the groove, I felt like I had lost a lot of respect for myself and I struggled to build the confidence in myself that I was worthy of running this podcast. But that time also allowed me to learn a lot more about the ego and offer you guys a way better product than I would have otherwise. So I'm very grateful for that. But it also allowed me to work on a lot of new music that I felt called to do over the past few weeks. So I'll end this episode with a sneak peek of one of the songs that came out of that titled The Path. Anyways, I'll talk to you next episode. Para el bien de todos, and much love. Mm-hmm.